live from the WAYOFM.org studios in the fabulous Fetter Building in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her as well. In this podcast, we take an objective look at dramatic change, and as two transgender women, we know a thing or two about that. And we will talk about transgender issues on this show in a way that we think will be both informative and entertaining. But we'll also be looking at amazing number of radical changes we're experiencing in our society as well. In our first segment this week, we're going to talk to my friend Stephanie Townsend, whose spiritual journey has led her to a fascinating transformation in her faith that quite frankly resonates deeply with me in my gender transformation story. And in our second segment, we'll be talking with Pittsburgh Town board member Stephanie Townsend about how sometimes transformations are brought around simply by realizing you're not alone. Uh, wow. Two different guests, both named Stephanie Townsend in one night? What are the odds of that happening? Hey, do you think they know each other? Uh, the odds are pretty high, Amy, since they're the same person. Oh, so what would happen if you interview the wrong version of her in each segment? Uh, we, we would have to reverse the segments, I guess. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Well, so it's perfect for this podcast. You got that right. And we'll be right back after the traditional music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loonie, and a few British tenors from when I was in London because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one, the coins, money, about how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses and by going to TransformationThursday.com they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can give that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. Our guest tonight is someone whose sphere I kind of drifted into over a couple of years. The Venn diagram of Facebook mutual friends that Stephanie Townsend and I have cuts through half a dozen different facets of my life. And her presence here on Transformation Thursday is directly attributable to one of the times you and I were on connections with Megan Mack. Oh, you mean Evan Dawson. Oh, come on. You know who drives that bus on that show, Amy. But yeah, Evan Dawson. That episode prompted a message from Stephanie to me that prompted a chat that brought her here. In our first segment, we're going to hear Stephanie talk about her faith journey, and I'm really interested to see if it resonates with you, Amy, in the same way it resonates with me. Stephanie Townsend, welcome to Transformation Thursday. Yay! Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, I really um, 
and I'm really glad that we we kind of drifted into each other because it's been so much fun getting to know you. And that coffee that we had when we talked about uh, your transformation of faith, that when you, you sent the message to me and you said it, 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 that our story uh, kind of resonated with you, and I was like, I wasn't sure that would happen. But when you when you told about your growing up and and your transformation of faith, I was really it it just. I could, I was like, yes, I understand that completely. So I was wondering if you might be able to give us like the, uh, the, the nickel tour of your life, starting out from when you were just a wee baron and, <laughs> sure. and moving forward from there. Sure thing. So I was raised in a Roman Catholic family. Uh, I was very Catholic and uh, my faith was very important to me growing up and through college. I was very involved at the University of Michigan with the Catholic student parish. And in fact, went on to do a master's degree in theology at a Jesuit school, the Jesuit School of Theology out in Berkeley. Um, but at the same time, I was exploring Judaism and eventually ended up formally choosing to become a part of the Jewish community and converting. How did that happen? How did you find Judaism? Well, it really was a, a process, and I think that many transformations are that way. There may be a moment of realization, but when you look back, you see that it, there was a whole process that led up to that moment. Uh, for me, the, the real first moment in this was when I was in my first year at the University of Michigan, 18 years old. I was a religious studies major. And so I was taking a semester-long course that compared Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And one of the books that we read when we were studying Judaism was a book called The Sabbath by Abraham Heschel. And that book riveted me. Um, it is a poetic, beautiful exposition on the Jewish notion of the Sabbath. And I basically fell in love with this idea of the Sabbath. But that's as far as it went. Um, I studied. I was fascinated. I took more classes in Judaism. I had a lot of Jewish friends who I learned from. But it was very much, there was no question for me that I was still Catholic. So much so that I went on to do a master's degree at the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And... Um, while I was there, I was living in this little apartment right across the street from a reform synagogue. And so about a year of that, of, of seeing my neighbors going to and from services on Friday and Saturday, hearing the music, hearing the prayers coming out of the windows, um, it, I felt so compelled to go and experience that. And so finally, one night I went and it was an experience of coming home. Yeah. When we talked about this, you were talking about having a, a phone call and a deep discussion with a friend of yours. And it just it just felt so real because, as I recall, you the, you were talking. He was he called you and you were having a discussion and you he was Jew. Uh, 
She. She. I'm sorry. Yes. She yes. was Jewish, and uh, you kind of you kind of confessed this attraction. To yes. Her? So I had uh, uh, for years, actually, ever since I read that book, my first year in college, I wanted to experience and go to services, but I didn't feel it was right as a Christian to go uninvited. And so I, I had felt this very strong desire to go and, and to the services right across the street from my apartment. But still, I, I held back for many months. And so it just so happened mm-hmm. <laughs> that that night I was dressed, I was ready to go, but I was still not quite sure if I was going to actually step out the door. And the phone rang and it was a friend of mine from Michigan. And she was just calling to chat and say hi. And I told her what I was about to do. And I told her I was hesitant. And she said, you have to go. And she sort of laughed. And she said, don't worry about it. I'm Jewish. I'm telling you, you're invited. <laughs> and I went. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds so much. I for, for me, so much of my early transformation was getting up the courage to walk out the door as myself and that allyship that yes. you would get from somebody who would say, it's okay. You have my permission to do this. You ha- you have me in your corner if nobody else. Is it is that something that you've ever, I, I can't imagine I'm the only one who's ever felt that way, Amy. No, I think that was a big part of my coming out as well, because I didn't really start exploring my gender as as an adult until I knew I had some friends and some people that were going to support me and hold my hand in, you know, a non-literal way. But, you know, some of them did actually literally. But that support, you need that from the external for a journey like this. And I think one of my questions now that I have for Stephanie is, you know, you walk into a synagogue for the first time. We were talking about this prior is the beauty of 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 the reform Judaism to me is part of that liturgy. How much of that felt similar to what you grew up in, but yet with it's, with it being in Hebrew, how, how, how does that work for you? That's a great question. There, there certainly are elements that, that I recognized. Um, but it really was less about that and more about I don't know quite what word to use, but it was this profound sense of connection, like I say, of being at home. So it was less about an intellectual, this is similar, that's similar. That came more later, in part because most of the service was in Hebrew and I didn't know a a word of it. Um, And so I was following along with the transliterations and the translations. And of course, there was a fair amount of English being a a reform service. But uh, it was more about this profound sense of being in that time and I hesitate to say say that space because it was not about the building, but it was a sense of I belong here um, and a very deep sense of connection to the people around me and a deep sense of connection to something beyond me. How did they receive you there when you walked in the first time and the subsequent times after that? Incredibly warmly. Um, Everyone. Now, I... I did, and this may be similar to your journeys. Um, 
I, I sort of hid my identity. You know, I, I would go into services. I would sneak in at the last possible moment so that I wasn't late, but that no one could talk to me ahead of time. And I would sit right by the door and I would slip out as soon as I could when the service ended. And you didn't at, stay for food after? I, I eventually did. But that was that was an, uh, an important um, shift yeah. for me. So sorry. Let, no, go on with your story. That this, the having, I have some experience in Reform Judaism as well, not as extensive as yours, but the food's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for those who, listeners who don't know, um, there is at the end of the services, there's what we call the Kiddush. And that is where we have, um, we bless the wine and the bread and we share them. And sometimes there's other food as well. Um, but I would leave right before that. And it was a big step the first time that I chose to stay because I knew there would be conversation <laughs> and people would ask me up until then it had been smiles and nods and, you know, sort of hellos from across the room. But I knew I was going to have to introduce myself and account for who I was and why I was there. And you were actually asked to participate, weren't you, uh, before you were ready? Um, I was. That came later. That was uh, when I was living in Texas okay. at the synagogue where I did eventually end up do, doing formally the conversion. And I was there as well. I was um, a little more bold, but still tended to be very quiet and come in and out <laughs> quietly. And one morning, the rabbi had invited me to... Um, open up the ark. There is, it's where the Torah scrolls are kept. And at one point during the services, uh, someone is given the honor of opening up the ark and then certain prayers are said and then the ark is closed. And I was asked and I declined. Um, and the rabbi was fine with it, very respectful. I had set a boundary and he respected that. But afterward, over the food, <laughs> I let him know I felt like I needed to. And I, I let him know that the reason I declined was that I, in fact, was not Jewish. And he looked at me and he said, Stephanie, it does not make one iota of a difference. And I, I appreciated that. I told him that. And I said, I'm, I'm glad it doesn't make a difference to you, but it does to me. Um, and he respected that up until the time that I went through my formal conversion. And then since then, I would accept the honor. And that's called, um, is that Ilya? Or what's the word for that? There is a specific term for that. I'm just yes, I'm trying to read. Al well, Aliyah is when you're called up to, to bless okay. the Torah scroll itself before okay. the Torah reading. Okay. All right. So I wasn't too far off there. No. but and the, the conversion process, that took place in Texas? Yes. In Texas, at a reform synagogue that had a very high number of uh, converts uh, and was very welcoming. Um, and the it, it sort of interesting to me was that of the people there in the congregation who had converted to Judaism, the most common religion that they converted from was Catholicism. 
which it was is still fairly, as I understand, still fairly uh, prominent in your family. How did your family take? For, how did you tell your family? For, and first off, including your husband, who I believe is a <laughs> professor at a religious school. Is yes, it? he is a professor professor here at St. John Fisher College. Uh, we met at the University of Michigan when we were both very active in the Catholic student parish. Both of our families are Catholic, um, and. He, he was, of course, the first one that I told. Uh, we were married at, by that by then and had been for a couple of years. And he knew about this journey. I'd been going to synagogue services regularly. And his first question was, he said, well, well what will this mean for us here at home? And I was like, well, what do you mean? Because in my mind, nothing much was going to change. And he's like, well are you going to keep kosher? <laughs> and for anyone who knows my husband, they would be laughing right now because he enjoys food. He enjoys cooking. He enjoys eating out at restaurants. If you say that you're going to visit a city, the first thing he will tell you is, oh, you should go to this restaurant. Um, so I, I laughed and I said, no, we won't need to keep a kosher kitchen. <laughs> So. Not buying new plates anytime soon. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. The story that he told himself, the, the, that his, his biggest fear about you converting was food. <laughs> so, so inside of that, though, we talk about, you know, we brought up our transitions mm -hmm. with your transition, but there's a distinct difference I picked up there because my now ex-wife of, we were married for 18 years, had no idea about my gender exploration much younger in life. So he went into this knowing. So was he terribly shocked? No, he was not terribly surprised. Extended family were. Okay. And that was a that was a, a different matter. Everyone has accepted and accepted it, but I think many didn't understand it, but they were acceptive and supporting. Um Particularly my one grandmother, she had written a note to me when after I told her and she had said that it was difficult for her because her faith as a, a Methodist was very, and she was from the non-Catholic part of the family, but that her faith as a Methodist was very important to her. And it was sad to her to think that she would no longer share that Christian faith with me. Um, which to me was quite moving to realize that she was acknowledging a loss that she was feeling in our relationship. Yet at the same time, as time went on, she was so supportive and she would send me Hanukkah cards Aww. and she would acknowledge those things. And, uh, you know, everyone, my, my other grandparents as well, uh, they were Catholic. They had eighth grade educations. They were farmers, um, just salt of the earth people. But they always found ways to acknowledge my Jewish faith. And that meant a lot. Yeah. And within that, though, did you, we were talking about this before, but on deconstructing religion and belief, did you have any family members that were upset because you're deconstructing Christianity in a way that lets go of Jesus? Yes, I I think it is hard for a lot of people. I found that less from family and more from other people whom I speak to who uh, have a Christian faith, that it's hard for them sometimes to 
because they only understand Judaism through a Christian lens. So it's hard for them to understand. They may go and, and say, well, but what about this that it says in the prophets? And, and they'll quote from one of the prophetic scriptures that, yes, the two religions both share in common. But what they don't understand is that Christians think of the prophets as predicting the future and prophesying something that will come. Jews don't interpret the prophets that way. The prophets were speaking to the Jews of their own time. They were not, are not seen as predicting something that will happen in the future. So you have a very basic assumption there that's different about what do those scriptures mean. Um, and that's where I find people have a hard time sometimes understanding my conversion process because they they don't realize they're looking at Judaism from a Christian lens. They think that they are understanding Judaism as it is. Is there anything that you miss from Christianity that that as you move forward in your Jewish faith, you kind of look back and go, I, I, I wish that. I still had this part of Christianity in my life? I don't think so. It's, I think the one thing that, that sort of falls in that category, is not so much a missing, uh, but, but there is a way in which I cannot give to my child some of the holiday experiences that I had. We do celebrate both Jewish and Christian holidays in my, my home. My husband and I have, have a son. Um, my son identifies as Jewish, um, although he's just finished at a Catholic middle school and is going to a Catholic high school. I love that. Um, but, um, but I just realize it's just, even though, you know, we celebrate Christmas, but it just seems... I worry about it being commercial. Christmas for me as a child was always religious, you know, and I, but I'm giving him a, a secular Christmas. Mm. And uh, so in that regard, I always feel just a little twinge of something's missing. Um, but I wouldn't call it regret. Yeah. On the other hand, it's not like you uh, have an issue with Christianity. It's not like you've read, like you're you're an anti-Christian or no. that you're just, there was just not the right, it's just not what you were. Right. It, it was, and I think the most striking thing is, as I said, I was studying at a Catholic seminary at the time that this really started to crystallize for me. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I used to laugh. I was like, oh, you go to Catholic seminary and you become Jewish. <laughs> um, and that's, that is very much what happened to me. And it was in part because of what I was studying. Um, so it's not that there was a rejection, but it's sometimes uh, too much knowledge can be a difficult thing to have. And as I studied more, and there was one class in particular, um, that as I studied more, I just came to realize that things that I growing up thought were a matter of faith were really a product of politics and history. And that I wrestled with that. And I know many Christians who wrestle with that. But that's where when I went to synagogue, Part of the feeling at home was that all of that wrestling was gone. It didn't matter what I believed. All that mattered was that I was there. 
you, you said something in there about not being an anti-Christian, but you have a faith in the in Judaism, but it also, are you familiar with Fowler's stages of faith? Yes. So that really hits me at a stage five or six where you're getting out of what we grow up with is this very primal, undifferentiated look at religion. And I'm using some terms here, but most, a lot of people stay in stage two their whole life, which is that mythical literalism. And I think a lot of times, you know, especially for me coming from a Mormon background, many Mormons stay in that two, three area. But when you get to that four, five and six, you're really starting to talk about high level thinking, differentiation and understanding that people use faith for different reasons. Right. And it's not really this true false dynamic, especially that I've been surrounded in for the last 20 years with inside of the Mormon church. So how, how does that play into your, the way you bring up your kids and everything else or your child or your son and you interact at home? Right. Wow, there's a lot packed in there. Yeah, and, um, I'll, and also I'm sure that, of course, I, of course, know everything about <laughs> Fowler's stages of faith. But, you know, just in case there's somebody out there that doesn't have as much information about Fowler, Fowler's stages of faith, maybe you could just give like a brief overview of what that is. Yeah, so it's, it's, it was developed by James Fowler. It came out in the early 80s, but it's really just this nice, and what I, I don't want to call it synthetic, but a nice way to synthesize religious belief into different stages. So you can look at that and say, okay, and it breaks it down, Fowler breaks it down by ages. So early years is undifferentiated faith. He says zero to two. Intuitive projective, which is, oh gosh, um, Stephanie's probably going to be a little bit better at this, but it's, you know, it's really characterized by the Psyche's unprotected exposure to the unconscious. So hmm. some really deep level stuff. Um, level three or two is mythical, literal. Um, and what he puts on these for ages is for seven to two. But I don't like the ages so much because people in their thinking and the way their brains are wired can stay in these different phases. You know, for me, at least the way I've come through life, I've kind of evolved through these over the years. And I would say I'm more in that five area, but synth synthetic, conventional, you know, individual, reflective, conjunctive, and then uni universalizing. So when you get into that five and six, you're taking almost a more universalist approach to religion and faith. Is that pretty fair? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think a, another framework that is actually much simpler than Fowler's, there's a great book that was written back, I think in the mid sixties, I think it was J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. And it I looks love at, that title. Yes, it's a great title. And it looks at different, from a Christian lens, looks at different um, sort of images of God and, and really calls people to not make God so small and fit in such a small box. And I think that is, although for me, it wasn't so much about my God being too small, I don't think, but there was just something very freeing about Judaism for me. Um, like I say, I didn't, it, Judaism is not about what you believe. It is about what you do. It is about following the commandments. This is where within Reformed Judaism, it is not uncommon to have people who go to high holy day services who identify as atheists, but they also say they're Jews um, because it is about following the commandments. And although I am not being orthodox, I do not follow all 613 commandments. Oh, come on. <laughs> but I, and I respect people who do, but that, that just doesn't fit for me in my life. Um, but it is that focus on, on what do you do? How do you live your life? Um, and 
it's not about what you believe. Jews are more focused on the question and less focused on the answer. And that, that for me was very freeing. Yeah. So if you do somebody who was perhaps a, an attractive, uh, not that old, you know, transgender woman who was considering a, a possible exploration into Judaism, what would you, how would you counsel them? What, what steps would you tell somebody like that? I would say that for anyone who is interested in Judaism, it, it, walk the path that is most comfortable for you, whether that is studying on your own and exploring that way, whether it is forming relationships with people who are Jewish and and through those friendships, developing it. If you want, if you're interested more formally, going and talking to a rabbi, um, many, especially of the reform synagogues, will oftentimes have sort of an introduction to Judaism um, that is intended for people who... Ne- are Jewish but never had a religious education, intended for people who from interfaith marriages who are the non-Jewish partner, um, and for Jews who just want to explore, as well as for people who are are interested in, in conversion. Um, so it's a nice those those courses are a great way. I never took a course um, when I did go to to. Um, talk to the rabbi about converting. And, and although they did have a course that normally people would go through, uh, again, I had a bachelor's degree in religious studies and a master's degree in theology. I sort of knew what I was getting into already. <laughs> and, and I did take one of those classes. And for me, it was a nice exploration of Judaism, reform mm-hmm. and conservative. It was co-taught by two different rabbis. And we had that exact mix of people within the class. And one of the things that I thought coming at the time, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, very Christian, especially the East Valley, very Christian environment there between religion, between evangelicals and Mormons. And I thought at some level, the course would spend some time deconstructing Jesus, but it, it had nothing to do. And that was my preconception, but it was, it was all about Judaism and it right. was about what, what we believe, what we right. don't believe where, and there was just so much gray and beauty and the different questions that were asked. Right. And I didn't convert at the time because of my family situation, but because now I'm transgender or I came out as transgender rather, I'm starting to re-explore those things. So, right. and finding that. So I'm definitely going to take you up uh, on yes. your off-air invitation to go to services with you sometime. I would be very happy to go with you. That is wonderful. And that's actually what you brought up there is kind of where, where I want to go with our next segment with Stephanie about assumptions and about and about the, the, the beliefs that we tell and the stories that we tell ourselves that are oftentimes not even close to the truth that often get in our way of being our authentic selves. And we're going to do that with Stephanie in just a few minutes. Stick with us on Transformation Thursday. Today's episode of Transformation Thursday is brought to you by Assumptions. Amy, you know what they say about assuming, don't you? Yes, when you assume, you make an ass of you. And me. That's what I said. No, 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 the saying is, when you assume, you make an ass of you. Yes. And me. 
That's right. Oh, come on. The aphorism is that when you assume you make an ass of you and me, you know that reaching a conclusion from a combination of a cursory knowledge of the facts and at hand combined with unrealized prejudices will take you to a conclusion that is often nowhere near the reality of a situation. That's why it's important to consider sources and question common knowledge as well as acknowledge when approaching situations where you may not be an expert. Yes, but you know what happens when I talk about me. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. In our first segment, we were speaking with Stephanie Townsend about her conversion in faith. And now we have a very special guest. We have Pittsburgh Town Board member Stephanie Townsend. Penny, she looks like her the first... Stephanie Townsend. <laughs> There's a very special reason for that, Amy. It's oh, she brought her identical twin? Yes, and we're going to find out which one's the evil twin in a few minutes. What? No, there is no evil twin, Amy. Oh, we didn't do the sister swap? No, we didn't do it. Stephanie, thank you for being on here for another segment. We usually just do one, and then that's enough. That's all they can stand of us. So you're good for sport for uh, for continuing on here. Well, it is an absolute pleasure. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Oh, she's such a good liar. <laughs> I know. So you're you're in Pittsburgh town board. You've been, lived in Pittsburgh for how long? Because I know you've, you're very fairly peripatetic. Yes. I have lived in Pittsburgh now for 12 years, which is the longest I've lived anywhere in my life. Wow. How, what brought you to Pittsburgh? We moved to Pittsburgh um, when... Uh, when my husband took a job at St. John Fisher College, prior to that, we were both on faculty at Dominican University in Chicago. Um, but after we became parents, we wanted to live in a smaller city. So we landed here and have every intention of staying for the rest of my life. Cool. Wow. I, it's, it's the similarities are just blowing me away here because we moved here, oh gosh, it'll be 11 years in the fall. And we're in Western Rondecoit, great school district, perfect for my 10-year-old. And just the same thing. We have absolutely no intention of leaving here. People, I just say, I don't want people to know how awesome Rochester and Western New York is, especially to raise kids, because everybody would move here. And just right. let's keep those taxes high. <laughs> when we uh, moved here from Chicago, a lot of our friends in Chicago were like, why would you move to Rochester? Because most people know nothing about Rochester unless they've been here. And my short answer was because nothing's more than 20 minutes away and parking is free. Yep. Well, and I actually had a friend in Arizona. We moved here from Phoenix. She was like, oh, you need to move to Pittsburgh. But, you know, even in 2008, we couldn't afford Pittsburgh. So, I mean, that's where we ended. So we ended up in West Rondecoit and ha very happy. Yeah, but you have no dairy in West Rondecoit. No, that's true. So Yes, we do, do have the dairy. Admit it, you moved for the dairy, didn't you? <laughs> So you, so you're in Pittsburgh. How long? And and so you were here for several years. Um, you were active in the Democratic Party, but as an outsider, or were as, as a supporter? Was, no, or? I was not active in the local Democratic Party when I decided to run. Um, I came in a bit as an outsider to the party. Um, I've been a registered Democrat for most of my life. I had done a lot of political work in my prior professional life in the sense of doing political advocacy. Uh, I was the vice president of public policy for the National Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I also, in that, working in that sector, did a fair amount of advocacy uh, in the various states that I worked in for policy changes. But I... I had always sort of thought that 
running for office would be a great thing to do, but I never saw a pathway uh, until 20, when I ran in 2017. What prompted the decision on your part to, to run? Quite, again, sort of like our, our previous conversation, I think transformations, there are pivotal moments, although there is sometimes, you know, a lifetime of work that led up to it. My pivotal moment for running for office came uh, the day after President Trump was elected. It was 9.15 in the morning. I was sitting at my desk working on a report for a client, listening to NPR and trying to make sense of what had happened the night before. I'm feeling triggered. (laughs) Uh, Sorry about that, Amy. (laughs) And uh, quite literally, I I clearly remember looking up from my, my work, looking at the wall in front of me and saying, it's time for me to run. Because I was, knew from that moment that the kind of ongoing transformational change that we needed in our country was going to have to come from the local level. A grassroots movement. Uh, but the grass in Pittsburgh is fairly red. I mean, was it, what, how did you get on the ballot? Did, the, did you get much support or was it, was the Democratic Party? Well, yeah, fine, go for it. I mean, we got a, I, I got a lot of support. So I went to my first Pittsburgh Democratic Committee meeting and I told them at that time, I introduced myself, got to know some of them, and I said, my intention is to run. And they were very, Uh, welcoming, a little taken aback of who is this person showing up for the first time who says they're going to run. But uh, the process, uh, yes, the process of that took a few months. And I, in that time, I earned their trust and their support. Um, And they have been wonderful to work with ever since then. What was the campaign like? I mean, for first off, explain the Pittsburgh town board and 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 the the system of governments in the town because it's uh, it, it's not like the city of Rochester. It's not like a lot of places. And so, just just to give an an idea of how things get done in in Pittsburgh. Great. So uh, happy to do that. So the first distinction we have to make is between the town and the village. The village of Pittsburgh, which is what most people associate with Pittsburgh, that area down by the canal, is its own municipality. It has its own government, its own mayor, its own board of trustees. But it is located within the town. The town board consists of five people, the town supervisor and four other board members. Um, Under... New York state law, uh, a town supervisor um, is equal to all other board members. So it's a little bit different than, say, the governor, who we have, you know, three branches of government. Uh, At the town level, everyone is equal. um, And uh, the town supervisor simply has some additional, mostly financial responsibilities, but does not, for example, have the ability to break a tie or anything like that. He's just one fifth of the people who run it. It is just one fifth of the people. Okay, and and so what do you decide? What are the what are the decisions that you are actively involved with? That is a great question, and something I was just writing about for my next newsletter for my constituents just this morning. Um, and one thing that I've said and and started talking about a lot on the campaign is that people would say, what, what does a town board do? And my sort of my mantra is that it's about more than potholes and snowplows. 
That's the thing that most people think about is you, you maintain the roads and you plow the snow. And that is an important part of our responsibility as the infrastructure in town. But part of what I ran on and what I am trying to do it in serving the town of Pittsburgh is to bring a bigger vision. Uh, so some of the things that we are working on in Pittsburgh, uh, a big one is environmental sustainability. We cannot in Pittsburgh solve the crisis of climate change, but we can do our part in our backyard to make a difference and contribute to that solution. So that's something that we have luckily, bipartisan support for. So we have a number of energy initiatives that we are working on and pro in the process of passing and adopting. So, uh, and even just even how we run town government. So just a couple of weeks ago, our, ener our own energy contract to purchase electricity for municipal buildings was up. And, uh, we made the decision at my suggestion that we go to 100% renewable energy. So now our buildings are going to be starting with our new contract, 100% renewable. And I, and I think you mentioned transformation and along with and Pittsburgh's a wonderful town, wonderful village. I always enjoy my time there. But this the spring pits and you talk about the election of Donald Trump and that's brought to voice a lot or it's brought to the foreground rather a lot of voices that have been on the fringes for a long time in racism that was once covert now it's more overt mm -hmm. and with the reports coming out of the school district i know you're not on the school board so but yet that still talks about community and how do you work within your community to change you know that perception you know how do you how do you work with that to integrate Pittsburgh's pretty white. So how do you work right. and how do you work with that to integrate, you know, minorities into your community? That's a great question. And it's a it's a big one. And 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 I really sort of have a two part answer. And part of that goes back to something that Penny said in introducing this segment when and one of your first questions that I didn't fully answer was what was it like running this campaign? And I think that's the, the first thing around assumptions and transformation is that there is an assumption. In fact, you said, Penny, you described it as the grass is pretty red in, in Pittsburgh. Um, there was an assumption that Pittsburgh were all Republicans. But the fact is, when I started my campaign, it was pretty well one third Republican, one third Democrat and one third other. So this assumption that Pittsburgh is one a one-party town had actually not been true for a long time, but people just didn't realize it. So when I would go out, I knocked on many, many doors. That is how you win a local election is knocking on doors. And people would literally lean into me, lower their voice as if their neighbors could hear. I don't want to be called a Democrat. And say, I'm probably the only Democrat on my block. <laughs> and I would pull out my list and I would say, well, actually, about a third of your street are registered Democrats. And they'd be like, really? And in fact, some of these streets, it was two thirds. 
um, there was this assumption that they were the only one. Even a few days before the election, there was a house that I stopped at and uh, the people were like, oh, of course, we're lifelong Democrats. And yeah, but, you know, we're one of only 10 in town. <laughs> and I'm like, actually, at that point, it was close enough to the election. We had actually tipped. And there were at that point more dem registered Democrats than Republicans. And that has continued to grow. Uh, currently, we are the largest party in town. Now, now does, that be, does that growth, do you think, directly a result of the 2016 presidential no, election? No, actually it's not. People assume that it is. But in New York State, if you are registered with a party or even without and you change your party affiliation, it takes a year. You like you don't that doesn't go into effect wow. until after the next primary. So it was not a lot of people assume that it was all these people changing party. But if most of those people, depending on the timing of the year, it, it takes about a year until it goes into effect. So that's amazing on two levels. So that started pre 2016. Yes. But then also the amazing side of that is. Our laws here for elections in New York really suck. Some of them do, and that is one that does. Um, I have to say our state legislature passed some amazing voting reforms this last session. Finally. And finally. Democrat controlled, um, finally. Yes. <laughs> then there, there are still some things we need to do. Um, and uh, that's one of them. But uh, we are getting early voting. We are getting no fault absentee voting and uh, some other very important reforms. So are there any things in your in your um in your job as a as a town supervisor, a town board member, that it just feels like you're running up against a brick wall. Is there is is there things you're just like, oh, I can't believe I'm having this much trouble doing anything, or has it been a fairly smooth ride for you as a Democrat in that in that on that board? At the beginning, it it has always been very, for the most part, very collegial and very cordial. Um, I think, though, at the beginning, it was more difficult simply because anytime there's change, it is hard for people. I think that's one reason that, that it's hard for people, even when they want to transform something in their lives, it's hard. Um, and to have that transformation happen uh, when it was not their choice um, is even harder. Um, but they all, my colleagues have all been cordial and, and respectful. I think that some of the, the challenge too was just coming to figure out that a lot of the issues were not different on. It's the process by which we approach doing them. So there was support already for environmental sustainability in Pittsburgh. Um, and there were some ideas and little things here and there that had been done prior. Um, it's going back many years. So it's not that we didn't agree that environmental sustainability was important, but it's the process by how do you go about doing that. My process emphasizes much more a, a a level of community input and community engagement. And even there, we all use the same words. And my co Republican colleagues think it's important to engage with the community as well. But we differ in what that looks like.
Does the community want to engage on this is another question. Yes, I think that uh, I think the community does. Um, we have seen a, a since myself and my colleague Kevin Beckford were elected in 2017, we have seen an increase in participation at town board meetings. Is it as much as I want? No, I love it when that building is full and we've got 100 people there. Um, I I think it's actually 95 is what we're allowed to have in the room. <laughs> but um, it's uh, but I just think it's it's hard sometimes um, for people. You know, everyone's busy. Um, so that's why for me, I stress multiple ways to engage with people, um, whether it's meetings with people in a neighborhood who are concerned about people speeding through their neighborhood and having that meeting with them, uh, whether it's conversations at the coffee shop, reaching out on social media. Uh, I still go around and knock on doors, even when I'm not campaigning. If there's, a, for example, a, if a building is proposed close that will affect a neighborhood, I will do as much as I can to get out and knock on doors and say to those neighbors, what do you think? Uh, in addition to the public hearing process that's required by law. So you're enjoying your time on the board? I mean, like in the big picture, maybe not like everything about it, but is it gratifying? It is very gratifying and I love it. I, my only regret is that it's not full time. It's, it's, uh, it's community service. Um, we're paid a stipend, but, uh, I still have to work a full-time job. Um, is this is this the extent of your political engagement? If if you could draw a map for yourself for the next 10, 15, 20 years, is there something else that you would would like to see yourself do or that you would that it would that, that sounds enticing to you on a political side? Um Blue I skying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, the answer that everyone is told to give is simply say, I am happy serving how I'm serving now, which I am. <laughs> but uh, in the interest of transparency, which is very important to me, um, yes, in the long term, if a seat became available, then uh, and I had the opportunity to run for it, then yes, I would consider running at a higher level. Um, it's just those opportunities are few and far between. So since you've been on the board for the last couple of years, what's what's the big aha moment for you? <sighs> aha moments. Um, I, I, you know, one thing I love about it, I mean, it's mostly I love serving people and talking to people and helping them solve problems and making their lives better. Um, I know that all sounds very pie in the sky, but I'm also I'm an academic. I love learning. And that has been, uh, for me, the exciting aha moments. So th about three months after I came onto the board is when we learned that the canal corporation was removing trees along the canal. And a lot of residents were very upset about this and wanted to stop this. Oh, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. And so I delved into reading everything I could from the Corps of Engineers about earthen dams and reports and scientific studies and educating myself on that. 
a few months later, we had a big tree, a trees. I never realized we're going to be such a part of my job that first year. Uh, we had a very large historic tree in Pittsburgh that had to be removed because of a fungus. And a lot of people were like, oh, do you really need to remove this tree? And so I delved into the all of the studies that had been done over the previous five years or so of this tree and what the tree scientists had told us about it. And, you know, so I never knew I was going to learn so much about trees, um, but I like trees. <laughs> and, and it's been exciting to me to learn about things that are not my area of expertise. Um, and so for me, when you say aha moments, it's things like that that come to my mind. Um, and you can see I'm smiling as I talk about these things because I I love learning. I've learned about refuse districts and I've learned about the <laughs> comptroller's office. I've learned more about accounting than I ever wanted to know. Um, but I, I love learning and I love learning in order to be able to serve my community better. That's a fantastic answer. What's the biggest frustration that you have so far? Oh, here comes the politician answer. <laughs> let's 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 get let's get the first segment uh, Stephanie back here and have her answer that instead. <laughs> then, what is the biggest frustration that that you have? Um, I did a because I, I this is one of the things that I do. I, I sometimes will look at like demographics, and uh, I think. I looked at the population as a percentage, and I think there's like 50 people of color in Pittsburgh. And is and I, 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 that that's that may not be entirely true, but it is pretty low. It is low. So um, yeah. So if you want to go there, um, which is probably a little bit of a different than what my top frustration is. But, okay. Um, well, yeah. We'll, we'll circle back to the top. We'll circle back to that. Right. Um, so um, the census estimate based in 2017 is that 12 percent of our town of 30,000 people or people of color. Mm. Um, for me, that it's not so much a frustration that is new in terms of coming since I came into office, because it, it's an issue that we faced when we chose to live in Pittsburgh. Uh, my son is Guatemalan. He's an immigrant. And so... That was our one hesitation of choosing that community uh, was I knew that he was going to not be living in the kind of diverse community that we lived in in Chicago uh, and that I had envisioned raising him in. But, you know, life is about choices and there's nothing's ever perfect. And we still felt that Pittsburgh was the best community for our family. Um but and, and yes, uh, you know, I, I'm hearing in the back of my head something I hear from people a lot is, well, there's other kinds of diversity in Pittsburgh. And, and it's true that there is. Um, we have a large deaf and hard of hearing population, uh, large lesb growing lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender population. Um, you know, it, it's there is also even economic diversity that people are not always aware of. Yes, we have the very large multi-million dollar homes, but I forgot to look it up. I think our median home is 190,000, which is far more 
like the other suburbs than than people think. Still out of reach for many people. Again, an assumption um, there. But an assumption there. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, again, I, I, I looked it up to make sure because I like... I'm a researcher <laughs> and I do statistics for a living now. Um, so I like to be accurate. Um, of female headed households in Pittsburgh, 13% live under the poverty line. 17% um, are eligible for SNAP benefits. Um, yeah, those are small compared to an urban setting or even compared to a lot of our rural settings in Western New York. Um, but the, those numbers shock many people. Uh, they think, I didn't know anyone was under the poverty line in Pittsburgh, but they are. Um, and for me, it is less about how many people and how do you want to slice and dice the diversity pie. It's more about how are we, are we serving everyone? Yeah. And, and I think one of my frustrations. This does actually lead to to a frustration that I have is that that sometimes the decisions or even the information we consider in setting public policy is based on assumptions that everyone who lives in Pittsburgh is financially well off, um, and assumptions about what goes with that. I mean, mm -hmm. all you have to do is talk to Pittsburgh Youth Services, who provide the social work services in our schools as well as outside of the schools, and they they can tell tell you about some of the issues that our youth and families are facing, and it's it's not Pleasantville. Um, you know, we have drugs and alcohol. We are on the opioid map that the sheriff's office puts out almost every month. Everybody's on that um, map. Yeah. You know, it's, it, but a lot of people assume that, oh, that doesn't happen in Pittsburgh. Oh. We, we have a homeless population in Pittsburgh yep, who live out, not just homeless of, of sofa surfing, but we have homeless people in Pizza, Pittsburgh who shelter in some of the, the abandoned buildings. Um, you know, all you have to do is talk to our fire marshal about it and she can tell you exactly where they go. Um, so, you know, there, we can't turn to turn away from that and pretend like it's not there. Yeah. Um, so that frustration is that sometimes it is about the assumptions that are made about who lives here and what their experiences are. Um, and to recognize that there are people who, in a whole host of ways, are struggling in our community. And we need to be making decisions that serve them. And, and the awareness, and your awareness, that they are part of your constituency. Absolutely. And Absolutely. And, you know, that really was driven home to me when I was campaigning. Um, it was already on my mind, but uh, I knocked at one door and a woman ca in cautioned me about the front step because it was a, a little bit crumbling. And she said, I'm sorry to have to point that out to you, but we cannot afford anyone to slip and fall in a lawsuit. Her husband had been out of work for five years. They were barely holding on in their home. And she spoke very painfully about how people in her neighborhood didn't understand it. You know, that, that yes, they live in Pittsburgh and it looks like they live in a nice home, but they were barely keeping that roof over their heads. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, and it's not that they were living beyond their means. It's her husband got 
laid off when the company downsized. Yeah, I'm I'm there right now. It's just I'm examining exactly the same plot, and it gets mm-hmm. worse and worse the farther away you are from full time employment because everyone looks at your credit scores and right. Uh, and so if you if your credit score is not good, they no matter how, if you're the perfect person for the job, you don't mm-hmm. even get an interview. Right. So it gets worse and worse, and that's. I, Go ahead. Yeah. And again, you know, also very well aware of uh, like our senior population. You know, you have people living on fixed incomes. And we all know here in Rochester painfully how some of those pensions that people counted on, especially if they worked at a place like Kodak, they can't count on anymore. Um, And their lives have changed dramatically. They worked hard. They planned well. But those plans, that was a rug that was pulled out from under them. And we have to make sure that we are taking care of everyone. That's a wonderful. Uh, that's that's a wonderful way of looking at it. Is is um, is there anything else we? Because you did you circle back to the frustration or? I think that is the big frustration. Yes, I think that as we were talking, that that I found my answer. Um, yeah. Is those assumptions that people both within and outside of Pittsburgh make. Um, Now, again, that is not to underscore the privilege that we have in this community. Um, You know, I don't want to diminish that. And we have to recognize that and we have to use that privilege responsibly um, without a doubt. Um, But we, we also can't make assumptions that uh, about who is in our community. Stephanie Townsend, it has been a great pleasure talking with you today, and uh, maybe we'll have you come back on again sometime? I would love to. All right, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Amy and I are going to wrap up this uh, segment in a few minutes, so hang on, everybody. This is Transformation Thursday. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and last time I checked, my pronouns are still she, her. How about you, Penny? I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her as well. So that was a really fascinating conversation with Stephanie, Amy. What what was your takeaway from that? My big takeaway came away in the first segment dealing with spirituality. One of the things that I've struggled with over the years personally is is, as I've deconstructed religion and beliefs of different faiths, um, then I turn around and have weaponized that knowledge. I mean, how, how, how do I, how do I put that? So for me, I have to realize that faith is very utilitarian. And even though I don't see it as true, false, some people still do. And that brings purpose into their life. And it's not up to me to make that definition or define that for them. Yeah, I really appreciated her, her, her definition of, 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 of Judaism as, as a religion of action. Are you going to take her up on her offer, by the way? Are you going to go to, go to, go to synagogue with her? Yeah, I think I will, because, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time, uh, in temple before when I was, you know, going going to synagogue services in Arizona. And so, you know, that part of my life is very, it's an important part to me. Yeah. And my, my, my takeaway uh, is again about assumptions, all the, you know, the, she exploded several of my assumptions about what was going on in, in the town of Pittsburgh. And so I was really grateful that, uh, that she did uh, stop by to listen to it. And if you really enjoyed listening to Transformation Thursday, uh, you could consider supporting us by going to our Patreon page. Yeah. And you can find that by just simply typing in www, because I still believe in the www.transformationthursday.com. Yeah, that's a very important thing, and it'll help us. Uh, there, there are costs involved in this, and uh, anything that you can give will help us out, and we will also give you exclusive content. 